0: Then I know, thank both, you for being here. Go. We're, we're going to be... Go like 40 minutes, so exactly, we're going to be in Judges 18 tonight, so please open up to Judges 18. Chapter 17, if you remember, or if you're familiar with Je- uh, chapter 17 at all, it introduced us to a dark time the Judges period, and especially dark time, right? Because, I mean, at baseline, Judges has been generally a dark time for this nation. We meet a dishonorable um, son who steals from his mom, and then a mother who makes a false vow to the Lord and supports her son's false worship. And then finally, we get introduced to this wandering Levite, who we don't get a name for him, who's forsaken the way of worship given to him by God Almighty, and he is just you know, desiring to, to make a name for himself, to do things his own way. Israel at the time doesn't have a king, and it's true they lack a human king at this point, But the reality that they seem to have forgot is that God is their king. And essentially at this point, Israel is just as pagan as the surrounding nations. They are synchronistic, meaning that they have taken the philosophies and the practices of the nations surrounding them and they have kind of mingled in the true worship of the true God with these false ways of worship and also even worshiping the false gods of the surrounding nations as well. And so Yahweh is neglected or put to the side even in favor of these false ways of worship. And in the case of Micah, the man that we met last time, it has become really bad in that he feels he has constructed himself a scenario in which God must bless him. He thinks that the religious activities that he's doing, and the the things that he's undergoing, the religious trinkets he's obtained – Will cause God to bless him, and make no mistake. You know this kind of thinking is still very common today. Prosperity gospel and Roman Catholicism, for one. I mean, have you ever seen sometimes Roman Catholics will have like a statue on their lawn or a little statue of a a saint, a, a saint as you know, someone who trusted Christ, and they they acknowledge only certain people to be saints. And when they do this, they think that person has special access to God. So they'll put like a little saint on their Dash and that little statue is supposed to give them extra, like, blessing and power to God. I've seen others. sometimes like, that was like a Saint Christopher metal, right? Same exact same thing, yeah, same exact type of thing. Or sometimes people think, or they'll have the rosary in their hand, and, and sometimes that's just to, like, memorize, you know, certain parts. But sometimes they think that half holding it gives them extra power access. That's just, that's syncretism. That's not the true faith. That's taking pagan practices and blending them in with superstition, or explain superstition and with what the reality of, of God's worship says he is. Okay, and so Micah plans to put God to work for him, but we cannot subjugate God. God himself is king over all people, and Jesus, who is God, has all authority on heaven and on earth, and we are never in a place of controlling him. We can't obtain the right little religious trinkets to make God bless us. It's not how it works. Now things were bad in chapter 17. Chapter 18 is the continuation of what happened in chapter um, of what happened of the events chapter 17. So we're going to read it all. The whole chapter is pretty long, and we'll ask the Lord to help us as we uh, try to break it down and understand it. So the reading of God's holy word, beginning at verse one in Judges 18. The gospel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill... (laughs) Excuse me. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim in the house of Micah and lodged there. When they were... By the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, and they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish, and saw the people who were there how they lived in security and the manner of, after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth, and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtal, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in, to possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an un- Suspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So six hundred men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtal, and went and encamped at Kiriath Jerem in Judah. On this account, that place is called Manethadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriathim Jerem. And they passed out from there from the hill country of Ephraim, and came to the house of Micah. And the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate. And the six hundred men armed with weapons of war... And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And They said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us to, to be a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man, or to the priest to a tribe of a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image, and they went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priests and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and lose your life with the lives of your household. And then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priests who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belonged to Beth-rohab, and they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born in Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved images for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to make sense of this story. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of text that we read, but we understand that, it, that it, this is your word, and it is good for us to read your word. And we pray, though, that you would give us a mind that could understand it, and that, Holy Spirit, you would convict us of the things that we should be convicted for, and that you would encourage us, encourage us in the truths of your gospel that are contained even here in this account. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys, so I wanted to read to you the whole chapter so that we would have a, an understanding of the flow of the chapter in the hopes that the Spirit would impress upon your hearts, even truth, even just as we read it. But we're not going to talk about the whole thing tonight. There's, I, intend, I thought maybe we could do that, but there's just too much. So what we're going to do is take into three chunks, and we're only going to deal with the first chunk tonight, the first section tonight. We'll have to do a part two next week. But there's going to be three segments, and we'll have applications in each of these three segments or three chunks. So for a breakdown, as far as an outline goes, and this is Peak Baptist sermon outlining. As you'll see, chap uh, verses 1 through 13, we see Dan's disobedience, and then 14 through 26, we could call it Dan's dilemma, and then 27 through 31, we call it Dan's doxology, or for Peak alliteration, Dan's derogatory doxology. Okay, so very three points. Everything starts with Ds. It's very Baptist, but hopefully, you try to remember it. So first up, Dan's disobedience. And this is really only what we're looking at tonight. Um, This is not a specific person named Dan. Hopefully that makes sense. This is the Israelite tribe, the Danites. And we're reminded right away again of the same problem that we've been dealing with since chapter 13 in Judges. That At this time, Israel thinks, or the the narrator of the story is reminding us that there's no king in Israel. They've forgotten that God is their king that Yahweh is the one who guides them and will protect them. And since they failed to remember this, it falls upon themselves to lead themselves and defend themselves. They're doing what they think they have to do for their own safety and for their own well-being. And Because they failed to keep the covenant they were in, the covenant curses that God promised back to Moses in Deuteronomy are coming upon them. And so it's as if God has left them to their own devices. Now, certainly that's what's happening here in this account. But we know, considering the overall, overarching biblical narrative, that God hasn't actually abandoned them. He's still preserving them in spite of their sin and rebellion because of the covenant of grace by which some of the people in the nation of Israel are saved. The remnant, as they're sometimes called, like in the prophetic books. But we don't meet any of them in this account, at least. There's really no mention of, of, there's, there's actually no mention of Yahweh in chapter 18 at all. We do read the name of God, but it's just the, the general name of God, Elohim. It's not the personal name of God, because from a standpoint of the covenant curses that they, are, that they have brought upon themselves, God has essentially kind of abandoned them. He's leaving them to their own sins, as we'll see. And so we know that, all, all we know that this at this point, beginning at verse 1 here, is that the tribe of Dan is seeking their inheritance to dwell in. Because we read in verse 1, that no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So if you guys hopefully remember that Israel, or sometimes also his, his original name, his name given to him by his dad Isaac, was Jacob. But then later he had an interaction with God, and God said, You're, you'll, be, you'll be called Israel. He had 12 sons. Dan was the fifth-born son of that group. And like all the other tribes... All the other sons, the people that came from him, the tribe that came from him, was allotted a specific piece of land in Canaan. And all 12 of these tribes, they had a special part that God had plotted out for them that was given to Moses and then Moses to Joshua. And they were supposed to go into the promised land and destroy the people that were there or push them out because that was God's plan to, to bless them and to show forth his future eschatological blessings that would be for his people because of what Christ would do and how Christ would usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Remember, um, they, they were supposed to not meld with the people in the land. They were supposed to push them out to put them to death. And it was holy judgment upon people who, at the end of the day, hated the true and living God. Uh, the tribe's entrance into the land was supposed to be a type of the holy judgment and cleansing that God is going to do to the whole world as the elect, those who are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, inherit the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes again, which will be someday in the future. We don't know when. When all, I like to think of it personally as when all of the people who are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world are saved. We don't know who that is. <laughs> I mean, when we think of ourselves, why, why, would, why would God save me? Like, and so, so that gives us great hope that God is going to save so many other people. And so we don't know when, um, when, when, that, when that will actually happen, but we do know it's going to happen at some point. Now, when Jesus returns to usher in this age to come, those who hate God will eternally be dead in hell. They won't be intermingled with those who love God and who desire to worship him because those people have been born again. And of course, everyone in Israel hasn't been born again. Not everyone in the nation of Israel at this time in Judges truly loved the Lord God. And so the type here and all the other... so As I was saying, Canaan, the promised land, is the type of the new heavens and the new earth. Not everyone truly loved God here in the nation of Israel. And so the type here and all the other types in the Old Testament never actually reached the extent that the anti-type does. The anti-type being the reality, the thing the type was supposed to represent. But in Dan's case, they utterly failed to show forth this eschatological judgment because they never even took the land they were supposed to. They never even did what they were initially supposed to do. So if you remember back to Judges chapter 1, verse 34 says, The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain." So God had the portion of land that God had set aside for the tribe of Dan was inhabited by this people called the Amorites. And the Amorites pushed Dan back to the hill country, out of the promised land, and they kept it. They held on to it. The pagans, who initially lived in land, were never driven out. And they drove Dan out. It's the opposite. Uh, Samson, the judge, he was from the tribe of Dan. And other than that, there's not much good that we read about the tribe of Dan in scripture. Uh, and even Samson that, that good. well, yeah, even that, I mean, Samson is kind of more infamous than he is, even though he's mentioned in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, for his the sins, his deeds that he did, and his love of sin, I mean, he's almost more infamous than he is famous. And when we get all the way to Revelation in chapter 7, where we get that representative um, numbering of all the tribes of Israel, and maybe you remember it, the, the 144,000 that are sealed in Revelation chapter seven, does that ring any bells to you guys? Remember? it's kind of a confusing image, but what what the author of Revelation is saying there, the Holy Spirit through John, is that God has, you know, he's he knows the exact number of people who are sealed by the Spirit. In other words, those who will be saved. It's more than 144,000, but it's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, so it's a complete number. But interestingly enough, Dan's not listed among those troops of the tribes. Instead of Dan being there, it's Manasseh. And Manasseh is one of the sons of Joseph. And so, again, so Dan it just isn't painted very kindly throughout Scripture. Um, he, if we were to actually go back to Genesis 49, uh, where Jacob blesses all of his sons before he's about to die, Dan's blessing kind of sounds ominous. talks about him being a viper who's going like, to bite at the heel of his brothers. And so all that to say is that we, as people who are surrounded by other people of God, need to make our calling and election sure with sober judgment. You guys all have one life. This is it. You're not going to be reincarnated in the future as some other person with a fresh start. Now is the time that God has given to you to be right with him, to do things the way that he desires for them to be done. Every person, you and I included, we are all born into this world under the wrath of God because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam's sin made it so that we're all guilty. That's Romans 5.12, and Adam all died. And here's Dan, who ends up being somewhat blessed in that there's enough descendants from him that he could be considered to be a tribe of people, one of the tribes of Israel even, but he's not right with the Lord. This whole people group. Is not right with the Lord. He's disobedient to God, or they're disobedient to God. And so you can't assume that just because you're born into a family that has Christian parents means that you're right with God. You can't assume that just because you have some things that others don't means that you have the blessing of salvation. It's not how it works. You need to be born into God's family, actually. That's John 3, that, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. God in eternity past, He covenanted together Father, Son, and Spirit to save and with righteousness and justice to forgive people for their sin. And they did this by the Son taking upon Himself the responsibility to come into this world, to live a holy life, to be born under the law, to take on a human nature, to be added to His divine nature. And I say that carefully because the addition of the human nature to the divine nature didn't in any way change the divine nature at all. It's still Jesus is so unique. He's a div- he has a divine nature. He's truly God and truly man in one person. And in doing so, he came and he lived as a person under the law, fully obedient to God the Father, never once sinning. And he, he lived a sinless life. He, never, he didn't inherit guilt from Adam like we all do. And since he was born into this world as a true man, he was able to then be put to the test uh, a covenant of works as it was, as it is, uh, so that if he was faithful and never sinned, then he wouldn't earn death. And instead, by his faithful obedience, he could earn life for everyone that would trust in him. But if he does even more than that, because he goes to the cross to die a death that he doesn't deserve, so that at the cross, the death that we all deserve could be placed upon his shoulders, and he could satisfy the wrath of God. There Making atonement for us so that our sins cannot, so that not only can we be right with God because of our sins being forgiven, but also we're right with God because we have Jesus' sinless life accredited to us through the faith that God supplies to us. And so, by the grace of, and so that means that we could be forgiven and that we don't have to be, you know, related to God through Adam and then under his wrath. But we can be related to God through Christ, born not through Adam, just through Adam, but also born through what Christ has done. And we can be reconciled to God, forgiven by God. And by the grace of God, we need to seek forgiveness from God for our sin. And it's by the grace of God that we do that, because the guilt that we inherited from Adam would in fact prevent us from actually wanting that forgiveness. No one seeks after God, Romans 3.11 says. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. So when you hear the good news, the good news being what God did so that you can be saved, and you believe it, that means that something has changed you when you really believe it. Because a lot of people hear the good news and they don't believe it, right? A lot of people hear it and they're just like, oh, I don't have time for that. Or some people hear it and they're like, oh, that's kind of good. But then they get caught up with the cares of the world. They don't really, at, at the end of the day, you know, a few years out maybe, maybe a few days out, Maybe a few decades out, they don't actually care about the things of God. But when you hear the good news and you truly believe it, it's because you've been changed. God's done a work in you. And the Apostle Paul says in his letter to Timothy that it's the washing of regeneration. And at that point, when we've been regenerated, we've been born again, we do what Paul says in Romans 10, which is we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. And so if you're doing those things, it's because you've been forgiven. You don't do those things in order to be forgiven. You do that you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth because you have been forgiven, not in order to be forgiven. Seek that forgiveness. If anyone truly seeks that forgiveness, God won't deny you. It's not about having enough faith. If faith doesn't save you, Jesus saves you. Faith is the instrument that Jesus uses to save you through. It's not about being good enough. Obedience doesn't save you. A striving for obedience is your response to God having saved you. I hope that that makes sense to you. If it doesn't, don't be embarrassed or don't be shy about that. Talk to me about it later. Talk to these other adults that are here about it. We want to help you to at least make sure that you're clear about those things. There's There's no shame in being a little bit confused about that. Nobody just knows it by hearing it, by reading the Bible. You have to have something explained to you properly. And you have to also have the Holy Spirit to enlighten your mind. But but let's talk about those things. We want to talk about those things with you. Now, Dan, he is disobedient. The section is highlighting his disobedience. He should have, by the power of God working in him, destroyed the Amorites back in chapter 1. But Dan neglected that. And so in verse 2... Dan has a group of spies out to scout the land. Kind of reminds you of how the 12 spies were sent out, right? Remember that in the, when they were going to check out the promised land? And only Caleb and Joshua come back with a good report. The other 10 spies were like, oh, we can't go. They were scared of them. But Caleb and Joshua were, were trusting in the Lord. And they said, you know, God is going to go out before us and he'll give this land to us. So it kind of reminds you of that. But it's different here because this isn't approved by God. This is Dan's idea. The tribe of Dan is living as if God is not their king. And so they are doing what seems right in their own eyes. And in a turn of events, they pass through Ephraim, and they stumble upon Micah's house, and they know this sojourning Levite, which is really weird. I mean, it's a small world, I guess. They recognize his voice. Because remember, this Levite's not supposed to be there. He's from the tribe of Judah. He was assigned to the tribe of Judah, but he left Judah, and he settled with Micah because Micah would pay him and take care of him, and he was going to act like he was Micah's own special private priest. And he's doing it all essentially for a paycheck. And you can't miss this, you guys. You cannot trust a man who would seek to serve as a minister of God for the paycheck. For for one, I mean, for most pastors, most ministers— uh, most priests, they're, they're not going to be you know, super wealthy. Some are, but that's not, that's not bad, necessarily. Uh, but, and also, we shouldn't think that ministers should take vows of poverty. The scriptures don't <coughs> teach that. Uh, the, the minister should have a life just like the people of the congregation, a similar life, an average life like that. But if you've got a guy who's in it for the money or status or anything other than the call of God in his life, He can't be trusted because he's going to tell you only what it is that you want to hear because his hope is that he gets something good out of it. Whether it's money, whether it's a comfy life, whether it's status, whether it's fame, whatever it is, he's willing to teach what is wrong and false because it gets them what they want. And there's all kinds of Old Testament accounts of this, probably none more famous than that of Balaam. In the New Testament, uh, Peter compares false teachers to Balaam. And he says in Second 2 Peter 2.15 that these are men who loved the wages of wickedness. And Jude echoes that statement associating Balaam with the selling of one's soul for financial gain. In Jude one eleven. But false teachers who are greedy for their own gain can only be supported because there are people who platform them. There are people who don't actually want to know what God thinks but who want their own will to be done. And so in a sense, they're greedy for their own gain as well. That's why the Apostle Paul can say to Timothy this very thing, he knows it's going to happen to Timothy, because this is the kind of thing that always happens. So in 2 Timothy 4, uh, verse 3-4, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate, accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth, and wander off into myths. And at that point, When Paul's writing to Timothy, the people of God are defined by the new covenant. Uh, The covenant of grace has been revealed. The covenant community is now identified by union with Christ based on grace. It's not a covenant of works headed by Abraham and Moses in which blessing or cursing becomes them depending upon their obedience or disobedience. It's different than that. It's all based upon what Christ has done. and, And for us, in that covenant of grace, because of what Christ has done, it's, it's nothing really but blessing. Even the trials we go through, even the suffering we go through is in fact blessing because it's conforming us to Christ, is sanctifying us. But even early on in the New Covenant, false teachers would prey on God's people because they still lived in a world that's plagued by the same sins that plagued the world at the time in which the Old Covenant marked off God's people. And we still today must deal with the same problem as well. False teachers abound in our age, in our community still. They are in the pulpits of churches down the street, they are on TV, they are on social media, and we need to take everything that we hear and hold it up into the light of the word of God to test it, because some people, that's right, because some people out there are only serving in this capacity so that they can get rich off doing it, so they can have fame from it. Is a person telling you what you want to hear? Or are they, are, are they telling you what the Word of God says? Are they distracting you with personal stories and funny tidbits and cool appearances and neglecting the Word of God in doing those things? Or are they prophetically revealing idolatry and pride and sin and then proclaiming reconciliation through the blood of Christ? Are they seeking to rightly divide law and gospel and proclaim the whole counsel of God to you, no matter what it costs them? You can tell, right, I mean, I hope at least, that a person, you can tell when a person is just telling you what you want to hear. Maybe it's more difficult if it comes from a pastor or something because you think that they have not and that's how they trick so many people, I think, because people generally assume, oh, well, this person is a pastor, he's a preacher, a teacher, and so I'm going to trust him. But you you can't just baseline assume that. You have to listen to what they're actually saying and hold it up to the Word of God. Because that is how people get deceived. When people just tell you what you want to hear, they're just flattering you. They're not telling you the truth. And don't don't get me wrong here. I don't I don't think it's always wrong to, to do that. Like in some cases, you might be wanting to encourage someone, and maybe you have like a real genuine appreciation for something. And so you do it then, and it's not wrong. So like for example, if my daughter's uh, draws me a picture. And She brings it to me and says, "You know, here, Daddy, I made this for you." My response is going to be, "I, oh, I love it. This is amazing. It's the best thing I've ever seen. And I really do love it." But it's not exactly like a Rembrandt, right? You think you would die for it? <laughs> oh gosh! Don't put me on. Don't put me on that level. <laughs> if, your house, if your house was on fire and there was in your house, would you go in and save it? Over my dog or something? No. Right? Uh, no. Over but, Adam? Yeah, of course. <laughs> no, not Adam. No. Um, But anyway, my point being is I'm not lying to them at that point. I'm telling them something to encourage them and express thanks to them because I love them dearly. But that's different than what you have the Levite doing here. That's different than what you have false teachers doing to so many people in so many churches. Look again at where Dan's disobedience has landed them, verse 5 and 6. They want this obviously false teacher to inquire to God for them. We talked about the Levite last time. I mean, he's, again, he's obviously a false teacher. He's, he's a false priest in a false place of worship. They're not the tabernacle. We'll get to that actually next week. And he has false gods. He has a bunch of idols that he's using to kind of set up and kind of deceive Dan, or deceive Micah, because Micah made them, and Micah was happy with them. So this Levite uses them, and he orchestrates worship around them. But none of that registers to these Danites. And so they say in verse 5, inquire of God, please that we may know whether the journey on will um, that we're saying now if it will succeed. They should have seen the false gods. They should have known this Levite from Judah is in Ephraim and something was wrong. They should have known from that. They should have known that this person should have been instructing them if they want to worship the true God to go to, well, Shiloh is where it's at, where we read at the end of verse, uh, chapter 18, uh, But they didn't even see all that. They're just, they're not discerning. And so they ask him this question uh, so that they might hear what they want to hear. And for one, it's a dumb question. It's just, it's a stupid question. They know that a portion of land has already been allotted to them. They haven't forgot that. They certainly haven't forgot that. That's where they should be. They should know to not ask this particular Levite because of, you know, the, again, the operations he was involved with at Micah's house. I mean, they could have been in, they could have even been in prayer themselves and not even asked this Levite. Not even treat him like some sort of oracle, like the surrounding nations treated their supposed holy people. But what do you think they would have wanted to hear from this Levite? Like, did they expect him to say like, hey guys, this is wrong. Uh, you know, there's a portion that God gave you. It's where the Amorites are. That's where you need to go. Did they did they really think even that he was going to say something like that? Uh, of course not. It would have cost the Levite something if he was to say that. Uh, worst case scenario, it would have cost him his life. And if he feared men, that would be his greatest fear. It would, it would be better for him to fear the Lord, though. Uh, but there is obviously no fear of the Lord before this Levite. I mean, just look at his actions up to this point. He, he wouldn't be Micah's private priest if he had any fear of the Lord. Because this warning that we have from Jesus in Matthew ten twenty eight says that we should not fear him who is able to kill the body, but we should fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. But this Levite is a false teacher, and he's being propped up by the tribe of Dan now. First propped up by Micah, and now he's being propped up by Dan. And you know, if you consider the prophetic ministries of people in the Bible, you would see that none of them have it easy. All right, maybe... As a personal reading goal for you, aim to read through the prophetic books. I mean, you could look at, you could really start through 1 Samuel and go all the way through the end of the Old Testament because 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings, and then the Chronicles, and then all the, actually, you could, the, then the prophetic books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those, they all deal with events within the lives of the prophets, um, some at greater detail than others. But if you were to look through all of those, you would see that none of them had it easy. None of them had an easy, cush life. None of them were popular with the masses. They often, because of God's providence, had audience with the king. They often were heard by many people because of God's providence, but they were never popular and loved by the people as a whole. So you can ask yourself a couple questions in trying to figure out what we're learning here uh, with our specific instance and this Priest who is offering a, prophes- a prophecy about the success of their mission. Uh, number one is the pe- and you could do this as a test for you know any instance in Scripture in which you see somebody asking for a holy man uh, to prophesy whether something is going to turn out good or bad. Okay, so you could ask this. Number one is the people seeking to hear from God, and the tribe of Dan here in this case, are they being represented as uh, reverent and faithful to God? If the answer is yes, and the so-called prophet gives an answer which is favorable, we can lean towards assuming that the prophet is speaking the truth, the prophet is being faithful, if the people asking are being represented as faithful and reverent. If the people seeking a word from God are not displayed as faithful, which is the case for Dan, and the prophet answers favorably, then we can assume that the prophet is simply scratching their their itching ears, and he's looking out for his own best interests. That might not be the case in every instance, but generally speaking, it's true. I think of the the woe proclamations against the Pharisees that Jesus said in Luke 11. A woe is a proclamation of judgment. So in Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 47 and 49, Jesus says this to the Pharisees He says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. And so you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So, again, these are the. the, What happened with the prophets? Most of them were killed. They were persecuted because they did what? They said what was true. They, They spoke the truth about God. They spoke the truth about the people's sin, and the people didn't like it, and so the people did what? They killed them. It's like the parable that Jesus teaches, the parable of the wicked tenants when Jesus tells the parable and he gives them a, a, about a, a man who owns a vineyard and he lets the people take over it and then he sends his workers to it to collect money and they kill him and then the same thing happens a few other times. Then he sends his son and then, and then the owner of the vineyard is like, oh, they'll love my son because he's my son and the people see the, uh, see the son and say, oh, this is our chance. Let's kill him and take the inheritance, which is just stupid. You can't take the inheritance <laughs> that way. Uh, that's not how that worked in Israel's laws at all. And the Pharisees understood at that point that he was talking about them. But when a prophet, when a real prophet, would speak the truth to a wicked people, the wicked people, unless God would grant them repentance, like in the case of Nineveh with Jonah, for example, they would end up killing that prophet because their hearts are hardened against the word of God. And you see the same kind of thing happening in our country today even. Although we have religious freedom, so there aren't people being murdered for not telling people are for telling people what God says. What you do see then, though, is churches and whole denominations selling their soul for financial gain, like what Jude 1.11 says. The world is watching. The world is watching. That hits a little close to home with Mm -hmm. the SBC right now. But we know that's the case because these churches and these denominations tell people what they want to hear. And so you have many churches that won't talk about sin from the pulpit. You have many churches that just they won't talk about it. They'll just talk about, oh, God loves you and want He wants to have you to have a a wonderful life. That's all they say. Those types of things, and they certainly won't talk about sin if they get called to do an interview on TV. Some of these false teachers. Uh, many churches today will in fact um, just go along with whatever the culture says is good and right. And so you see, even like rather large churches and churches like. You know, in air quotes, here, that are affirming women as pastors, because you know they say, oh, a woman could do anything a man could do, and in some cases, you know, there's not that men are better than women or not that, but God has designed for men to be pastors, not women should be. right? There's, there's an order given, a proper way of doing things that God set up that glorifies him and honors him, and that we, as people who are born again, who love God and desire God, understand is right and good, but people who don't think is just bizarre and backwards. But nevertheless, you have churches that, that cave to the culture. In that way, our churches are denominations saying that homosexuality is blessed by God. Because why? Because the culture says that. But I, if you've seen, just there's this church, right... um. By Liberty High School that has like the big it's the Methodist church that has like the rainbow flag on it. That says they're they're affirming of you know of people who live a homosexual lifestyle. And so again, they're just they've caved through the culture at this point. They're wanting to be, they're wanting to not get in trouble with the people. Or you have whole, again, denominations or churches implementing CRT and intersectionality into their ministries. All of those kinds of things are of the same evil spirit as to what transpired in the, in the Old Testament with what we have happening in the specific passages here. Many people who profess to be teachers and rep- represent God are simply looking out for their own best interests. They have sold their soul for, for financial gain, and so they want to appease the culture. And so let's look at verse 6, because the Levite will tell them what they want to hear. He says, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. And look, this is the danger of sitting under false teaching. This is why if you have friends that are at bad churches and you know the church is bad and you know the church is compromising the truth, you need to warn them to leave that place because it's only a matter of time before they do what these spies from the tribe of Dan here do. And so verse 7 to 10, we read of the spies believing what the false teacher has said. Isn't that that dangerous? And the message of the false teacher is believed by those who are deceived and wicked. And the tribe of Dan then goes into this portion of the land that the Lord didn't give them. They see, basically, that it's going to be an easy victory. The land is spacious and good, and the people are quiet and unexpected. And so from the standpoint of the tribe of Dan, this looks great. It's like it can't get any better. They even use the generic name for God, Elohim, and they say that he's given it into their hands. And we've talked about the deceitfulness of sin in Judges before, right? But this is, and this is another, another example of that very thing because, listen, it's a sad thing when a person is, is desiring things which are evil, which are contrary to the revealed will of God, as God says, as it was with this land situation for Dan, and then God gives it to them. It is a sad thing when people desire something evil that God, in his revealed will, doesn't the desire for them to have, and then God gives it to them. He gives them what they want. It's a form of judgment. They are getting what they want, and they are even getting a way, and in a way they are thinking that God is the giver of this gift, which in a sense he, he is, because he's always accomplishing his will, Ephesians 11. but the problem is that they think they are blessed for getting this, and they're not blessed for getting this. It can't be any farther from the truth. This isn't God giving them the desires of their heart because they're asking for a good thing. The Amorites have that land that God was going to give to them. This is God giving them over to their sin. This is God not disciplining them as sons and daughters, as we read in Hebrews 12:5. This is Romans 1 territory. This is God giving them over to the desires of their heart. This is the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness because they're suppressing the truth in their sin. They know they're supposed to have the land where the Amorites are, but they don't want that. They want something else. This should put the fear of the Lord in us, friends, that God, as an act of judgment, will sometimes give a person what they want, even when he knows it's not the best thing for them. And in order to get it, they're going to have to go against a people whose disposition only contributes to Dan's false security. I mean, Dan thinks they're secure, but they shouldn't be. I mean, think of the description of the the Sidonians, actually. To the Danites, they're free from all internal struggles or conflicts. They're free from rulers, uh, such as the governor of conscience. They're free from ties and concerns to other people. They're free from the fear of invasion. Charles Spurgeon notes that the Sidonians are a picture of the carnal believer, the believer who's self-deceived. The Sidonians don't know that the Danites are about to overtake them. And that should really make the Danites understand that they could be, at a moment's notice, overcome by the wrath of God themselves. But they are aloof to it because they are suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness and they're pursuing their own desires rather than what God has desired for them and God is giving them over to their desires. Then in verse 11 to 13, we read that the tribe of Dan prepares for battle and they travel back to the house of Micah because they aren't done showing their character. We're going to have to leave that for next time. But I want you guys to consider for tonight as I conclude how much better God's will is for your life. Than what you might desire for your life, what we tend to desire for our lives. If you remember back to the opening of the book of Judges, God set apart land for the tribe of Dan. He promised to go before them and obtain victory for them. They would have pushed out or destroyed those who didn't love God and they would have lived in peace with their surrounding tribes and had peace with God in that. They didn't have to work to earn it. They, they certainly didn't deserve it and they certainly weren't getting it as a reward. It was a gift of God to them. And they had, all they had to do was believe God and respond with faith, which would have been a gift from God as well. And they would have enjoyed a period of peace in the promised land that would have served to point to the new heavens and the new earth. Yet, they feared God when it came to the Amorites. They didn't operate in faith because they didn't have any, and it led to them desiring something that God didn't intend to give them in the first place. And they, they have come by it through sequestering a false teacher who was guilty of false worship, making them guilty of false false worship. The false teacher gives them a plan which in fact puts them in further disobedience to God. And as we'll see next week, in direct contradiction to God, that is what your will, when you're not seeking to have your will conform to the will of God, will get you every single time. Direct contradiction to God. When we look at ourselves, when we look at our own will, to our own desires to find happiness, to find joy, to find peace, fulfillment, whatever it is you're wanting, we will always fall short of actually achieving it. The worst thing that can happen for us is for us to make positive steps in the direction of the desires of our will when they aren't being conformed to the will of God. Sometimes God, I've heard someone say before that sometimes God will give you enough rope so that you might hang yourself. So we, we need to be sure that we are desiring what it is that the Lord desires for us. Uh, we can do whatever we... Sometimes, you know, when, when we're seeking our own will, what we end up doing is trying to do whatever we can to avoid any suffering in our life, to, to find pleasure, to find enjoyment. You're, the opposite of that then would be suffering. But the best thing for us isn't what we think is always best, but what God has said is right. Those whom God saves are raised with Christ and seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Jesus, as our elder brother, has gone before us to glory. He's preparing a place in heaven for us, for all who trust in him. We have an inheritance with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8 says. We are fellow heirs, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him, suffered with him, meaning that we don't give in to at least one way of meaning suffering, meaning that we don't give in to our own desires which are contrary to God. because That's not easy to do, right? It's not easy to deny yourself. It's impossible to do without the grace of God. See Romans 7. But look at the promise of God in Romans 8:18. 8, the promise of the Lord in Romans 8:18 8. says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And then Paul goes on to explain. Yeah, Paul goes on to explain then the the glory that is awaiting for those who desire the will of God, the new heavens and the new earth, the whole creation's future glory. It's the best thing that we can have. There, in Christ, is true joy, is true happiness, true peace and rest. May we be satisfied in Him. Let's pray. Holy God, um, it's so easy to be deceived. It's so easy uh, for us to chase after our own desires that we think are right, which are in fact contrary to your your revealed will. <clears throat> we pray for wisdom, that we might see that in us and turn from it and instead desire which you have shown us in your word. Help us, Lord, uh, to not be like the Danites, uh, whose name is mysteriously missing from the the tribes that are mentioned who are all sealed in Revelation uh, chapter 7. We know that if our names are written in your book of life, that they can't be scrubbed out from it, Lord. So we pray that you would help us to seek forgiveness and that you would conform us to Christ, that we might desire what your will is and that we would reject at every turn our own will. We, We have desires because of your goodness to us to be pleasing and to do what is good and right. For you nevertheless the ability in ourselves we don't have so please lord overcome our flesh overcome that nature in us which has fallen because of the sin of adam and help us who are saved to depend upon you and to be conformed to christ and we pray that you would work salvation in the lives of those uh, who we love and who we know who aren't saved and if there are questions among us this evening about what it means to be saved and what it means to desire your will. Lord, let us have good conversation about it here in the coming days. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.